Interview number 97, Lloyd R. Nietzsche, A Perspective on Native American Storytelling. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. And I am so glad, I am so grateful that you have come here with us, that you have made it here with us because, oh, well, I have found someone. Mm, I saw him perform last night. I have found someone who lives in the love of story, who is the embodiment of the old style storytelling tradition, of one who passes the story from one to the other through the mouth. Not only do we pass stories through books. Yes, I know books are so wonderful, all you book lovers out there. No, but we also pass stories just through the mouth, through the lips, through the brain, through the heart, into the hearts, into the brains of our children. And I have been blessed in that last night I saw a man who was telling stories that had come to him like that. And that is Lloyd Arniche, who is a Cherokee teller who has learned storytelling from his uncles. He has learned stories that have been passed down in his family for generations. I just like the way that sounds. For generations. I just turn green with envy thinking about it. Because the stories I heard as a kid involved cars and usually happened the week before. So, Lloyd, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this very much, I tell you. And Lloyd travels and has traveled extensively telling stories as a Cherokee storyteller. And he's built up quite a reputation um, in the storytelling community. So, Lloyd, do you have a story you could share with us? Yes. I was sharing with a group of teenagers, and when I finished, I turned to a young Cree Indian girl from Canada, and I asked her, do you know any of the old stories of your people, meaning the legends of her people? And she shook her head and said, no. And I thought a moment and then said, do you know any of the stories of your people? Again, she shook her head and said, I don't have any stories to tell. I thought a moment. And then I asked her, what is your most memorable experience? She was quiet for a moment or two, and then she said, some friends and I were coming back from the settlement, and somebody said, let's go up to the top of the ridge and see if we see a moose in the lake on the other side. We went up to the top of the ridge, and we looked down on a huge lake on the far side. As we stood there, a moose slowly walked out of the woods, waded out into the lake, and then started swimming across the lake. She said the sun was setting on the far side of the lake, and it looked like the moose was swimming into the setting sun. We were all quiet for a while. And then I said, You have stories to tell, but you don't realize it. You all have stories to tell, but perhaps you don't realize that either. Oh. Did you realize at a certain point, did you wake up one day and say, I know all these stories? And you didn't realize it before that moment? No. Um, I had the uncles who were sharing stories, and we would sit and listen to them. Uncle George would tell a story, and Uncle Dave would tell a story. It's like watching a tennis match, going back and forth between them. And without realizing, I started learning the stories. Tell the story about how the bear lost his tail. Tell about Spearfinger. Tell about the animals' ball game. And I knew the stories, but I loved hearing them tell them. And eventually, there was a lady who'd come to Cherokee, and she was not uh, Cherokee. She had actually come up from Alabama, and she realized the young people were not learning the old stories of our people. 
So she gathered a small group of us together and had us learn a story well enough to tell it. And then, normally once a weekend during the month in the winter, she would take us out to outlying communities. And we would share stories at a Boy Scout group, a Girl Scout group, a church group. And after we shared stories, we would have dinner and, and meet with young people off the reservation. And so she was instrumental in getting a lot of us to learn the old stories well enough to tell them to a group of people. But people don't seem to understand, well, I know that story. And yes, you may know the story, but do you know it well enough to get up and tell in front of a group of people? Now, that's called a performance-ready story as opposed to knowing the story. And there's quite a bit of difference in there. Until you try it, you don't realize really what I am referring to. But we learn stories that we could get up and share in front of people. And then other elders shared stories with me. And then people from other tribes shared stories. And then stories would just happen. And I would remember what took place. So these all became part of my program. And I've gathered stories for years. I feel blessed because of all the stories that have come to me. And many times without intending to look for a story, the story was just there and taking place in front of me. And I recalled what happened. But people who shared stories with me have ranged from a teenage Cree Indian girl from Canada to Billy Mills, Olympic champion of the Lakota people. And everything in between, Floyd Red Crow Westerman, I got to spend time with him. He played Chief Tin Bears in the movie Dancing with Wolves. And he shared with me a multitude of stories that happened behind the scenes of Dancing with Wolves. And then he shared stories from his own uh, life, things that he had done, being an Indian activist long before it became the thing to be. And other people who were just ordinary people, but have extraordinary stories to share. And they don't realize it is just part of what they're sharing with the people. So with all of these different inputs for the stories, it's, I feel that this is my blessing that I have been able to hear these stories and then turn around and share those stories with other people. Do you think for some people the stories are invisible? That they have to learn to see the colors? It's sort of like the world is black and white, they don't see the stories, and then one day someone comes along and points out the colors, and all of a sudden they see all the colors. Is it like that? Yes, because we are we go through our day-to-day life, and we don't realize the stories are taking place around us. We just see, but we don't see. We observe this, and it's like someone who's going into the woods. When you're learning how to track an animal in the woods... You have to be aware of the animal's habits. Where does it eat? Where does it sleep? Does it sleep during the day? Does it rest in mid-afternoon? When does it feed? In the morning and afternoon? And once you start learning the habits, then you can go out in the woods and you can almost predict where you will see this creature. But without knowing the background, you just see a deer in the woods and you know, oh, it just happened. Well, maybe it did and you were just there at that point. But on the other hand, if you knew the habits of that animal, say a deer, then you could almost predict where it's going to be at a certain time of the day. Uh, during the evening, you could hear wild turkeys flying up into trees uh, going to roost for the evening. And if you ever heard a turkeys going to roost in the forest, it sounds like somebody throwing a brick into the trees. They're not exactly the most graceful creatures, but you can follow them. And when they come out of the trees, again, the same thing. They are, they're like uh, flying rocks. You know, they hit the ground with a thud. They come down through the branches and trees. But, again, this is a story into itself of watching these ungainly creatures who are not the greatest creatures in the air, but you have exceptional hearing and sight and can spot you in the woods and take off at a dead run, and you never realized they were anywhere around. And there went a story, but you were not aware that they were there. It's the same with the stories around us. We're just not aware that they exist. So how do we become aware? How do we how do we begin to see if there's no one in our in our community, if there's no one around us that we can go to for the lesson of how to see these stories? We need to quit going through the motions and live each day. I'm doing today these things. I'm going to get ready for tomorrow, but I'm thinking about tomorrow. And I'm not seeing what's happening here. 
watching the lady walking her dog. As the dog walks along, it just sort of sniffs as a flower it goes along. Have you ever noticed the dog doing that before? Well, you just see the woman walking the dog. You didn't see what the dog did. And why would a dog do that? Who knows? But a human would do it. And now you see a dog doing it. But we don't see this. We just go through the motions of day-to-day life. We don't live each moment of the day. I get up in the morning and I'm grateful. If I can get out of bed and dress myself. And people will get out of bed and they complain, it's raining today. Oh, it's overcast. Oh, it's going to be a terrible day. I think of all the people who can't even get out of bed, who would love to be able just to sit up on the edge of their bed. And yet I'm able to get up and dress myself. And that makes it a wonderful day. If I'm just in bed and I cannot get up, if I can open my eyes and I think of all the people who can't even open their eyes. Again, there's always someone who's worse off than you are. So I'm always thankful every day that I wake up. And I live each day, not as though it's my last day, because there's a different mindset there. People have told me, well, you need to leave each day as though it's your last day on earth. And I say, if this, if I knew for a fact this was my last day on earth, there are things that I would not normally do. However, if I knew the things I experienced this day will never happen again, now I'm going to view them in a different light. And that's when you start living that day, that moment, instead of going through the motions. Then you'll be amazed at how many stories are there which you have never seen. Yes, indeed. This is Baba Jamal Karam, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf, the only storytelling place on the Internet where you can hear the true facts, true feeling about storytelling. I've never seen... I, I'm just fascinated by this idea. I, I had a conversation with David Novak where he told the story of this basket. And I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but the woman comes to live with him. It's, I'm, I'm just slashing the story here. But the woman comes to live with the man, and she has a basket, and she says, I'll live with you as long as you never look in the basket. And eventually, the man looks in the basket, and there's nothing in it that he can see. And then she leaves. And to me, the story's about trust, but he said, no, 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 the story's more. The story's about the unseen. The woman had something so precious and so gentle and so hidden that the man, when he looked at it, he didn't even recognize it. And that's such an amazing metaphor for the oral tradition. Yes. Yes. Yes, I agree. We have uh, wonderful stories that are out there. And sometimes going to a storytelling festival, going to hear a storyteller, maybe not at a festival, but just hearing a storyteller and hearing some of the stories they are sharing and some of those are from life situations that if you had seen it, you would not be aware that there was a story there. And yet, they found the story in that same situation. And I find that so many people go through life, they are not living that moment, they're not living that day. They're just going through the motions. And that's why I feel so many people are, you have depressed people. There's wonderful things here that we can admire, that can bring the people up, the spirit up. Because I go along and I will see a groundhog along the side of the road. He's moving through the grass. And he thought, he's learned to adjust, living by the road. But if he makes a mistake, it'll be the last time he makes that mistake. So he's got to learn to live in the two worlds of modern industry and the cars flying by within a few feet of him where he's feeding and he's got an abundance of food. But if he ventures into the wrong area there, that could be the last time he takes that great adventure. So here again, looking at the stories of what do we see and what do we not see, there's stories all around us. But too often we don't um, see or appreciate you know, what has taken place around us. When you tell your stories from that have been passed down and you perform in front of an audience, 
Now, there's a stage of storytelling in all art forms. There's a stage of development where a beginner copies the people they admire. So, I'm sure you have people come to you and say, I heard that story that your uncles told you, and I'd like to tell it. What do you say? I have no problem. For me, stories are for sharing. But you have people, and some of them are Native American storytellers, who do not want non-Native Americans telling Native American stories. And I have no problem with people sharing stories. Stories are to be shared. And I tell people, when you encounter this situation, don't argue. There's nothing to be gained by this. You're not going to change their position. So accept it as part of your life experience and continue on. But don't let that deter you. I have people who have said, well, how should I dress for Native American storytelling, even though I'm not Native American? I said, please do not try and dress as a Native American. That, for us, is one of the worst things you can do because there's very little about the dress of the Native American. And again, you have to talk about what time period. Was this before the Europeans came to this country? Was it shortly after we made contact with them? Uh, were we wearing cloth clothing after we made contact with the early settlers? At what part in their history are you dressing? And where is the accurate uh, information or documentation about what they really dressed like? You have the illustrations, but do you know how accurate the illustrations were? Or was this the artist adding a little bit more to the drawing? You don't know. For us, we feel a lot better if you know a little bit of those people that the story is coming from. And you share a little bit about their background, where this story came from where the story came, and tell that prior to sharing the story. If you're sharing about the Lakota, you know, they're Plains people, and a little bit more about their background. They are the people who lived in teepees and traveled following the buffalo herds before the first white man came to this country. And living on the buffalo herds, that was their uh, grocery store, that was their hardware store, that was their clothing store, that was their home depot for all the... Uh, Things are used to produce uh, shelters, fires. Um, they had lodgepole pines, which got their name because they were so straight. And they would travel for miles to find lodgepole pines because you don't have great forest on the Great Plains. So when you found a, a stand of lodgepole pines, you would travel to get those, strip them of the bark, and bring them back. And these are what you use for your lodgepoles. But knowing this part of their history and then sharing a story from them. We feel a lot better about you doing this rather than just putting some feathers in your hair and saying, okay, now I'm going to tell you an Indian story. And, we, you know, I just shudder when I see people doing that. And they're doing it out of ignorance. They don't realize what they're doing, how our culture feels about this. And we say, well, we, we can't educate everybody, but... We ask the people who ask us about telling Native American stories, don't try and dress up in their uh, the way they dressed because there's very little documentation unless you have someone who's instructing you who does know that. But the time we feel would be better spent just sharing a little bit of their history of that particular people. So a lot of your stories are coming out of your actual experience of nature, your actual experience of your daily life. Well, I have a lot of the old stories, how the bear lost his tail, how the rabbit lost his tail, uh, the underground panthers, the bear man, spear finger. These are some of the old stories that I share, but also share stories, as I said, about Billy Mills, behind the scenes of Dances with Wolves, a um, lady on the Papago Indian Reservation who celebrated Christmas in the most unique way and had probably the best Christmas present she's ever received. And she was not Native American. A true story. And I actually got that story from Arizona Highways. And I contacted them, and they said, yes, it was a true story. I got permission to share that story. And as I said, the stories come in from, from all different areas there. The sharing with the teenagers and the young Cree Indian girl, that was an actual experience that I went through having people come up and share stories with me. And in the process of sharing stories, something else happened that became probably a more viable story than the actual story they were sharing with me. 
so the process of gathering your stories is not one that I've actively pursued. It's just something that has come to me with sitting down with people and they start sharing their stories or simply asking someone, what does this mean when you dance and you put your hands toward the fire? And that triggers memories and other stories that they have. And I, I advise young people who say, I don't know any stories. And I said, go to your grandparents and simply ask them, how did they get water when they were young? And they may have had a well. They may have had a spring. They may have uh, running water. You don't know. But just ask them. And no one has ever asked them this before. And you will find, well, this brings up other questions. And all you have to do is just ask a question about how did you cook? Did you use wood? Did you have coal? Did you use um, propane gas? And now the young people coming up, of course, a lot of them are going to have modern-day answers with this. But they can ask them, do you remember what it was like before everybody had a computer? And, oh, yeah, dude. Well, now everything's got a computer. And I got into computer programming in 69. And this is when we had the vacuum tube program uh, computers, and there were a size of rooms. And I remember one company I worked for, the whole programming staff got so excited because the mainframe computer was going to increase its uh, memory from 28K to 32K. <laughs> and we, we were turning cartwheels down the you know, hallway. Oh, my God, four more K. You know what we can do with this? And now the students say, 4K? How much is that? Is that bigger than Tetra gig? How, how big is that? I've never heard that before. Yeah, I know you haven't. <laughs> so, again, it's looking at the the progress of life and asking them, uh, for the great-grandparents, asking them, you know, how did you get water? For the grandparents, do you remember before computers came in and everybody had a computer in the home, what it was like then? Oh, Yeah. Uh, did you know, did you have a uh, um, a TV set that didn't have remote control? Oh, yeah, you had to get up and walk over and change the channel every time. And, I said, and did you have to move the antenna to get your good signal when you first got your television set? Oh, yeah, we had to adjust that. We had the rotor on the antenna. A rotor on the antenna. You didn't have a satellite dish? And here you go. So a whole new set of stories, a set of experiences that are there that the young people today have no idea. iPods and GPS. How did you get lost? Got your GPS? You don't have a GPS. What are you? You know, barbarian? Golly. And I laugh. I was going to one remote school, and I showed up at the school, and they were standing around and said, You're here? And I said, Yes. Oh, my gosh, you're the first person that's come to the school that we haven't had to send somebody out. We always have somebody standing by the car, and we tell them to get to this store, and we go pick them up from the store. You're the first person that's ever made it to the school. How did you do that? And I said, well, I'm Indian. Oh, yes. Oh, that's right. Oh, we're sorry. I'm going, oh, yes, we understand. And then I said, I went on to Google and got the map, and it showed me where you were, and I followed the map. Oh, no. We liked it better when you said... Because you're an Indian, you could find us. <laughs> so again, just an everyday event that became yet another story with this. But I have shared stories, and stories have come out of those, and stories have followed that. There's one story I share about Billy Mills that triggered yet another story about Billy Mills and triggered yet another story concerning the original event. And a very moving and with the, uh, and they were years apart from the first story until the third story occurred and involved in that series of events. But I think that was in 96 the first story occurred, and the last portion of that occurred in, I can't remember, it's 2002 or 2003. So, again, you never know where the story is going to take you. And... There are occasions when I will share a story. I never have a set program unless people have asked specifically for a story or a series of stories. They may say, 
we just want you to tell the old stories from the Cherokee, and I said, fine, I can do that. Or we just want you to tell stories from the 1700s, 1800s, fine, I can do that. But when they give me open carte blanche, so to speak, of, you know, you've got an hour to share stories, whatever you want, and turn me loose, then in that type of program, every so often, I get the feeling I need to share this story. I don't know why, but there's somebody in the audience that needs to hear this story. And I may never get confirmation of that. But for me, that feeling is enough for me that I need to share this. There's someone who needs to hear that story for whatever reason. I was sharing one story, and I had a very dear friend in the audience who had had some health problems. And when I shared this particular story, it was about that the physical shape that we live in, the shell that we live in, was not important, and so many people place emphasis on it. How do they look? How is their hair? Their shape? Are they toned, etc.? And the story emphasized the shell was not important. It was what in the heart that matters. And this person was sitting in the audience and had been telling stories for years and came up afterwards and told me, Thank you, Lloyd. I was going to stop telling stories because of my health. Now I realize that doesn't matter. It's the stories. And continued on. And I can't tell you how that made me feel when she shared that with me. So again, you never know who the stories are going to touch and how they're going to touch them. And you may think, oh, this is really going to touch you like this. And the person sees it from a different perspective. And it just touched them, yes. But it's touched them in a manner in which I had not even thought of. And for them, it's become very, very important. I shared uh, a story last night, and one of the individuals came up to me and said, today, and said, out of all the program I sh uh, shared was a little over an hour long, that was the story that came up and said, I can't believe it. You know, you showed that, you told that story, and I went home and told my wife, i got to share this with you, and told her the story. And she laughed and said, I loved it, and she loved it. But in an hour-long program, that was the one story that he remembered. And that was fine. That was for him. And there are others who have come up and talked about different stories I shared. And that's why I like to share a wide uh, group of stories from the humorous to the moving to stories that make you stop and think, stories with lessons in them. Because I never know what the people are going to do, how they're going to view them. But it's just sharing them a wide range of stories with them as I can. When you tell the older stories, do you feel like they're proven? They've been told so many times that the uh, all the edges have been rubbed off. They're they're smooth and they're easier to tell in some ways. Or I find all stories uh, generally easy to tell. There's uh, there's some stories I've heard which I didn't add to my program. I like the stories, but I didn't add them to my program for whatever reason. But with the old stories, I add, I change the story with the way I would normally talk. I don't try and repeat it the way the elder shared it with me, because if you want this with our oral history, if you want it the same way every time you read a book, our oral tradition is each person tells a story their way. And they may use words that I don't use. Uh, one of my uncles shares a story to use the term Father Chief. Father Chief told his son and Father Chief. And I don't use that term. I take Father Chief out. I say the chief was a father of four boys. And the chief would tell his sons. So I take the father portion out of it. But I explained at the very beginning that he's the father of them. So I um, I change the stories to the way that I normally would talk or how I would share a story. And with the old stories, although they've been told time and time again, each storyteller shares them in their own words or with their own vocabulary and their manner of speaking. So this is what I've done with the old stories. They're, they're easy to tell because I've heard them so much, so many, many times before I even started doing the storytelling. 
when you're telling the old stories, and do you hear your uncle's voice sometimes? No. When I'm sharing a story, most of the time when I'm talking about the hummingbird flying up into a tree, I'm seeing a hummingbird flying up into the tree. As he perched there, he looks down to see if the geese had seen him. And I'm looking around as though I were the hummingbirds. I'm, I am in the story. I'm living the story. And some of the stories I share pull up such deep feelings in me. I have to prepare myself emotionally by taking just a few moments of silence before I start sharing the story to collect myself. Because if I don't do that, I walk a very thin edge of control. And when you lose control during the storytelling, it makes your audience uncomfortable. It's okay for them to see tears, but if you still have control of your voice and in telling the story, they understand the emotion that is coming through. But you have not lost control in the sharing of that story. It's when you lose the control of the sharing that the audience becomes uncomfortable with your distress, not really your distress, but with your uh, lack of control, not embarrassed for you, but it uh, it's a bother to them and you basically lost the mood when that occurs. So if you're sharing a story and the tears come and you continue with the story, then they still see that you're still in control of the story and the story is flowing for them, but they see the emotion that is there. It's actually shown to them. So the emotion adds to the experience instead of distracting. Yes, a lot of people feel it distracts, but one of the um, most moving stories I share is the story of Chief Joseph and the Nez Pierce. And with this story, I have to prepare not only the audience with a series of stories to get them emotionally ready for the story, but I'm also preparing myself emotionally. And normally when I share Chief Joseph, that is at the end of my program because physically and emotionally I am wiped out. I can't share anything else after that. That will be the end of my story. And whenever I have shared this story, I have walked off stage and the audience has been silent. There has been no applause because it has affected them that much. And they will normally, the MC will bring me back on stage and just a few seconds after that. And that's when the applause begins. But the, the mood of that story is such that it's affecting the audience and the silence there is not to be broken. And they recognize that. You spoke earlier about how you feel a calling to tell stories sometimes. You feel like this story is called for in this space with this audience. Do you sometimes feel a calling not to tell any story or a particular story? No, I sometimes feel, after sharing a few stories, that uh, one of the stories I thought about telling, not that I had planned, but I thought about telling, would not be appropriate with this audience because of their responses. And usually when I, I tell at the very beginning, there's a couple of stories that I share, and I use these to judge the audience reaction, see where we are. Oh, is this one that laughs easily? Are they following me when I talk about we're looking out over the valley and we see the hawk floating on the current of air? Are they seeing the same thing I'm seeing? Are they saying, okay, birds flying in the air? No, they're not seeing it yet. They're not visualizing as I am. And I will shift gears and move to a different group of stories. But audiences will be, um, I'll find, okay, they're not responding to this type of story. They're not responding to this type of story. And I finally get to the third type of stories, and they respond to that, and I start sharing stories from that group. And sometimes in sharing that third group of stories, I can then move them and make them ready to more uh, acceptable to other types of stories, which initially would not have been accepted by them. And so I alter programs sometimes right in the middle of the program, according to the audience response. But that's what gives me the feedback. A lot of people have said, well, you want the house lights down? I said, no, I need to see the audience faces. This tells me, am I sharing with them? And if I'm sharing with them, then they in turn are sharing with me. And they will actually tell me which stories I will be sharing. I like that. I like that. They will actually be telling me which stories I'm sharing. I tell this way, and many of my regular listeners will think that you're a little bit of a... Um, 
that you're an in. You're 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 a sly. I, I picked you out as a guest because <laughs> so many times on the show I've pushed this idea of having an agenda, having an idea of what stories you're going to tell, but then in the actual show, letting the wings fly and going off into the calling of the material. And I do feel that sometimes. I feel like in some shows, the stories crowd around are like, no, no, me, me. <laughs> in other shows, you know, it's like very clear, this story, you don't know why. You just know that story. Yes, definitely. There are um, some audiences that are so responsive. I say, listen, I wish I could afford to pay you. I'll take you with me. You know, go to my next event with me. They are so responsive, and when I hit these audiences, that when I'm when I'm talking about the hawk flying over the valley, and you see this majestic creature who is a master of the currents of the air and flies without flapping its wings, and I can look at them and see in their faces they see the same picture. Then I will start sharing stories that I normally wouldn't share with a, an average audience, more moving stories. And I feel they will respect and will honor the stories as I will. And so you are going into a very special place in this telling. I'm, I'm fascinated by this oral tradition. So let me just return there one more, for one more time here. Do you ever feel that or get nervous that there's a story that your uncles told you that you've forgotten? or that you've forgotten a significant part of it? No, because all the stories they shared with me, I learned and, and reinforced and went over them again. So I know those that they shared with me very well. However, there are times when I've been sharing a story and I have come to a part in the story and my mind just went blank for whatever reason. I, I can't explain it. You know, I guess my old age, I'm getting up there. But, uh, and I have to stop and pause in the story and wait for the rest of the story to come in. And at one point, I realized I'd been telling a story and it wasn't the story I didn't intend to tell because I was going to share the particular story and I didn't, I never tell the audience the name of a story I'm going to share. I just start with the story and very rarely have I named the stories. And I was sharing a story, and I realized, no, this is not the story I wanted to share because of the response. I wanted to share story A, and I'm sharing story C. Well, I shifted from story C and just stepped right into story A, and the audience didn't realize I'd started off with the beginning of one story and slipped into another story. Since they'd never heard either story, it didn't matter and very easily stepped into part into uh, story A, and we never had any problem with uh, the shifting there. They didn't realize the shift had been made. And I finished the story, and I was just thinking, well, if I'd gotten farther into story C, they would have had things in there that I could not have shifted back to A. That has happened on um, not a lot of occasions, I guess maybe three or four times, that's happened when I started one story with intending to tell another story and suddenly realized, whoa, this is not the one what we were talking to respond. I wanted to share this with them and made that shift within the story itself. What about passing the story on? Do you have grandchildren? Yes, I have five grandchildren. Uh, my two oldest grandchildren are not interested in learning how to do the storytelling. My three youngest are, they've actually won awards in elementary school for the storytelling. And they, I think, will be sharing this tradition, both of my children. I got up and they tried, um, when we were sharing Cherokee culture and history, I said, learn just one thing and get up and share about that. We won't have you do an entire program and see how you feel about that. And they both tried and decided, no, they didn't want to be up in front of the audience. They'd rather be in back, and when we'd finished, we'd drive home, and they would give me a critique because they'd heard me so much. And, well, you were talking about this, and they were very interested, and you cut it off and started in something else, and you lost them there because you didn't explain that. 
And it's like, wait a minute, stop this. You know, let's go back to I'm the father, you're the kids. No, 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 we like this. You know, and let me tell you something else. Slash, slash, slash. I need blood transfusion before I got home. But they became my best critics because they loved to sit in the back and they'd watch the audience reaction and they knew, they'd heard it so many times, they knew what I was talking about. And boy, you talk about uh, no holes barred, no filter on the mouth uh, critiques. They gave it to me. But I had asked them that uh, they'd gone to several uh, presentations I'd done just on Cherokee culture and history. And then after about the fourth or fifth time, I asked them, forget that I'm your dad. Just tell me what you thought. How did the audience react? How was the presentation? And boy, okay, no problem. We'll be glad to do that, Dad. And the slashing started. But as a result of their feedback, they were thing they made me aware of things I was not aware of. And I learned to do presentations through the school of hard knocks. And my kids became my best critics. But um I started doing that in nineteen seventy. And in nineteen ninety I actually started sharing stories and in ninety three I went full time with the storytelling. And now it's um, sitting with people and having them give me feedback, you know, after I really enjoyed the story because da-da-da-da. And I, oh, I didn't realize that that had come out in the storytelling there. Okay, good. So they're, they've made me aware of things that have come out. And in some cases, well, I didn't understand when uh, this happened, how, how you, um, you did this. And I realized, oh, I hadn't explained that. But I knew the transition in my mind, and I forgot that they were not from the culture who wouldn't recognize that transition had been made. And so I appreciate this and said, okay, now I need to bring that out and make everybody aware of why that is happening. I just want to talk about um, what it's like. And this is, I don't know. <laughs> You know, he told me before we started taping, you know, any questions? So, because a lot of Caucasians in America don't have any understanding of what it's like to to grow up to be a Native American, especially, especially Cherokee. When you know, if you know anything about history, the word Cherokee has a lot of history behind it. Right. And Tim Tingle did come on the show and did talk about the Trail of Tears to some extent. So people who have listened to that show already will have already heard had an introduction to the basic, um, the Trail of Tears history. But I'm just curious about, in Indian country, as it's called, in the Native American culture in North America, there there are people who have reacted to growing up Native and are bitter. And there are people who have reacted and are generous. And there are people who have reacted and are, you know, I'm not going to be Native. And there are people who have gone really into Native culture. And I'm just curious about, you know, what what your thoughts are about that. Well, we have uh, people, as you'd indicate, there are those who are extremely bitter because of what happened to our people. And I try and tell them, this happened 150, 200 years ago. Nobody today is alive that had anything to do with this. And you're walking around with all this anger. And what happens is goes into your heart and it turns the heart into something like a walnut. It's got all this dark, hard cover with all these wrinkles in it. And nothing can get out unless it's shattered. And I said, that's not the way the heart is supposed to be. Nothing happened today that can change what happened 150 years ago. We have to learn to live with that and work with today. Make sure that it never happens again. But you're walking around with all this anger in your heart. And you can't let anything else in because of that anger. And you're losing so much of life that you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be carrying this around with you. Anger is good in some instances, but to live with it all the time and be always angry about something that can never be changed is a waste of time, quite frankly. And I get angry, but I'll get angry at an individual or something they've done, not because of their race or their religion or where they live. It's like uh, saying, well, all Nazis were German. Yes, but all Germans were not Nazis. And there's a difference. And some people became Nazis just to survive. And they say, well, I'd never do that. Well, what would you do to make sure that your wife and your children would live? 
Would you sweep floors? Would you empty garbage pails? Would you go out and clean out a hog pen? I mean, these are just some things not even close to what other people have done to ensure the survival of their family. So you, you cannot judge them by this. You look at the individual, and it's the individual. And I'm not perfect by any means because there's people I dislike intensely. And there's other people I have nothing to do with because I simply don't care for their character. And I won't be around them. I'll be, if I'm around them, I'll be around them as little as possible. And there's other people I admire immensely. But my late wife, who was non-Indian, taught me that I could love another woman and not be unfaithful to her. That not having sex with her is not what I'm talking about. But to love her and love her like a sister. That I could love another man. And it didn't mean I was a homosexual. But when you're in war and you share the foxhole with someone and bullets are flying over your head and you depend on that uh, fellow in the foxhole with you, you don't care what color his skin is, you don't care what his religion is, you don't care what his background is, it's just that you can depend on him. And you produce a bond, a love there, that is stronger than any woman, any wife, will ever be able to understand that bond that exists. And that is a love between two men, and they're not homosexuals. Uh, this is a love that my wife taught me. I could love other people outside my family. And it was the sharing of this love that opened up my life to other people. There's several women that I love, several men that I love. And it was not, I didn't feel ashamed to express this or to show my love to them. You go up to men and hug them, pat them on the back, and yes, you know, I enjoy seeing you. And today's world, you know, two men hugging each other, hey, yeah, back, back off there, you know, we're not sure we want to hang around you anymore, Lawrence. Says, okay, that's your choice. If that's how you feel about my loving another man, that's your choice. And I won't uh, hold you accountable for that, but you're the one that has to live with it, not me. So this feeling, the sharing of the stories is just another way of expressing my love for the stories. And I'm sharing that love with everybody. Some people accept it, others will reject it, and some people are indifferent to it. And it doesn't matter to me. Each accepts it as they will. They decide what they want to do with that, that sharing and that love that I have. But I don't love everybody. I'm very selective in that. Oh, I love the whole world. Says, no, I don't. There's a lot of people in the world I don't want to have anything to do with. But I am very selective in those that I want to share myself with. And these are the people I have a very special feeling for. And it's, you know, it's called love. This is Lauren Neme, standing on the streets of Jonesboro, Tennessee, and saying, The art of storytelling with Brother Wolf is where it's at. Oh! When I was watching you perform last night, you... One of the last stories you told was about the Trail of Tears. And I was just wondering if that's a constant presence for you in your sets. You know, do you, does that story make its way into many audiences' hearts? Is that sort of a responsibility you feel to educate the general public about the Trail of Tears and the history of the, the Cherokee? Yes. Not only using the Trail of Tears, but also... Uh, educating people about we live in homes just like everybody else does today however we have like the uh, some of the reservations in the northern plain states are some of the poorest reservations in the United States people talk about third world conditions and I can take them to Native American reservations and show them third world conditions that exist here people living in shacks no running water living in burned-out cars because they don't have a house, wondering, you know, where their next meal is coming from. Are they going to survive the winter? Can they get another blanket just to stay warm? Not do they have any propane or wood or coal to heat the house because they don't have any. Just can they get another blanket? That may mean the difference between them surviving the night and freezing to death. These conditions are existing here in the United States today. I try to educate them about Native Americans with the fact that we're modern in a certain extent. We don't live in teepees anymore. You see them at powwows. People bring them to powwows because they're very easy to 
uh, bring in setup, and when they're properly set up, they will stand winds up to 50 miles an hour. They will keep the rain off. They're very roomy inside, depending on how large the DPs are. But this is not a standard fixture as far as a family living in them. Today, they vacation in this. They go to powwows in them. And when people come in, they see me with blue jeans and tennis shoes and ribbon shirt on. And you don't have any feathers or buckskins. No, I don't wear those anymore. I've gone modern. I, I even have a cell phone. You know, and, oh, no. I can't believe this. And... I try and ease them into it, but one of the things when I'm talking about how we have become civilized is that I have electricity, I have running water, I have indoor plumbing, I have a phone, I have a satellite dish, two computers, but I do have over 150 horses. And sometimes people ask me, where do you keep over 150 horses? And I tell them, they're all outside in the parking lot under the hood of my SUV. <laughs> and said, oh, you think I drove and I came in on my horse and he's parked outside there. Yeah, I'll go out and have to clean up after him. The city ordinance, you know. It is, um, and I try and do it in small bits and pieces. Uh, during the course of the, the program, I'll throw out just little bits here and there, not a whole bunch at a time. And it's easier to take just a small bite than to sit and eat a whole platter at one sitting. So this is why, how I try and share in this regard, to let people know, yeah, we are on reservations, but people come and go as we please. We don't need uh, passes. At one point, an individual came up to me and said, how long is your pass good for? And I said, what are you talking about? Well, you're off the reservation. You can't overstay your pass off the reservation. They're going to send soldiers after you. I said, no, uh, that's not going to happen. Have you got a lifetime pass? And, boy, that was an interesting conversation. It is fun with the people I meet, and it's just a lack of ignorance about our culture. And there's, today, there's very little modern material that's available. You see the John Wayne movies, and, oh, John Wayne and his 30-shot so, uh, six-shooter, which you never saw him reload, shooting all the Indians here. Uh, when I was growing up, we'd play cowboys and Indians, and I didn't want to be an Indian. The Indians always got shot. I wanted to be the cowboy. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, the exposure and what you're sharing. And I saw people coming in from all over the world to our reservation as a young child. Uh, people would come stay with my grandmother. She had a, a big... Where was the reservation? Cherokee, North Carolina, western North Carolina. It's about an hour west of Asheville, North Carolina there. But my grandmother had a, a big two-story, five-bedroom home, and she was widowed, and she and her friend were living there together. And people would come and stay with them. She'd come on in and stay. And there was a lady from Hawaii who would come in and stay for a couple of months during the summer. And her name was Jerry, and I got to know her quite well. And then uh, there was one occasion we had a student from Sweden that was going to stay there for two weeks. And uh, people from Florida and all over. And I go into Grandma's house and, oh, who's that and how long are they here? Where are they from? So it became commonplace to see these different people. In contrast, now my mother had tuberculosis and had to go into the hospital for two years. And those two years, she and my father were divorced when I was very young. And I went to live with an aunt and uncle, and this uncle was one of the, the storytellers I was talking about. And his wife taught at the University of Oklahoma. She taught French. Well, my other aunt was going to the University of Oklahoma, and she was working toward a language degree. And she stayed in a cottage that my Aunt Della had on her property. And I would listen to my Aunt Della and my Aunt Mary Lou speak French. And in the second and third grade, I was picking up conversational French. Well, the uh, after the third summer, the, I was in the second and third grade with them. And we came back after the third grade. I was walking through downtown Cherokee, and this tourist came up to me and said, How? You speak of the English? I said, Oui, monsieur. Comment ça va? He said, Gertrude, come over here and listen to him speak Indian. It's uh, even at a young age, I was having fun with uh, people around me. That. How can people get in touch with you? What's your website and, and contact information? 
My website is just www.arneach, that's A-R-N-E-A-C-H dot com. And I have a contact there where you can email me. You can see my bio, uh, some of the places I have uh, been doing storytelling, and my upcoming schedule for storytelling. I have published two books. One of them is out of print now, and occasionally you can find it on Amazon.com. It's called The Animal's Ball Game, and it was published by Children's Press out of Chicago. And my most recent book was just published last year. It's called Long Ago Stories of the Eastern Cherokee, and that's published by History Press out of Charleston, South Carolina. I also produced a CD called Can You Hear the Smoke? This is a collection of Cherokee stories, some humorous stories, and the final story is about a friend of mine who's not Native American who had a vision. And uh, it's a very powerful story, but I include that story on the CD because I wanted to show people you didn't have to be Native American to have a vision. Normally, when someone has a vision who's not Native American, the other people say, Oh, you're hallucinating again, aren't you? Yeah, well, you've been grazing on that happy grass. But that's what we call a vision. For my offer, I'd like to remind you that in 2010, second weekend of April in 2010, in Yellow Springs, Ohio, I am hosting the third Environmental Storytellers Retreat. And if you're interested in attending that, if you are already an environmental storyteller, either a storyteller or an environmentalist, and you have some commitment along either of those paths, you're welcome to attend the retreat with us. So you can read all about the Environmental Storytellers Retreat at eco eco dash story dash twenty ten dot blogspot.com and if you have trouble finding that website go into Google and search in Google under eco storytelling retreat separate words and it will be the first thing that comes up this retreat is geared towards environmental storytellers naturalists and environmental educators so if you know someone who fits in one of those categories Please invite them, tell them about the retreat, help spread the word, help pass this on to those who you think might be interested in attending. If you like what we've been talking about today and you want to comment on the blog, there is a blog post at www.artofstorytellingshow.com. That's the URL for the show now, artofstorytellingshow.com. And I also want to remind you that if you are isolated, if you don't know a lot of other storytellers, I have a storytelling community online at storytellingwithchildren.ning.com. And if you've enjoyed this interview with Lloyd, you're welcome to go on the blog and write a comment. I'll be sure to forward to him by email so you can read it. And write a blog comment and let us know that you've been enjoying this conversation. Go to the page of this interview, search for it um, in the search box. And as another part of that, if you are an iTunes listener, if you're listening through iTunes, please write a review of this entire show. Reviews really get me excited and fuel me up and jazz me up, and they have a big, a big make a big difference in the iTunes world in terms of us getting featured and recognized within iTunes. So, um, Lloyd, do you have any last words for the international storytelling community? Just that... And people say, oh, I could never be a storyteller. I couldn't get up in front of an audience and tell a story. Well, if you share an experience with someone, if you tell them what happened during your day, you're a storyteller. It's not the number of people in the audience that make you a storyteller. It's just the fact that you're sharing an event, a happening, or a story. We're all storytellers, and we all have many, many stories to share. We just have to get out and share them. I think out of this conversation, I've really taken this idea that in every audience you have, whether it's one person or a hundred people or a thousand people, there is someone in that audience who really needs to hear a story from you. And you are the only person who can tell them that story. And if you tell that story, you will make an amazing difference in their lives. And that, that difference may ripple down through the years and make a huge difference in this world. But if you don't get up and tell that story, or if you're too set on what you're supposed to do on that stage and you don't listen to that little voice that says, tell me, tell me, 
that little ripple of goodness and light will never happen. So when next time you get on stage, just take a few seconds to listen to your heart's desire. And maybe that story, that that woman in the second row, that that little boy in the fifth row, that your daughter sitting in bed needs to hear will come out of you. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Lloyd. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. This guest has written a post to the blog that can be read at www.artofstorytellingshow.com. This post includes a bio and a link to the guest's website, plus other additional information about our discussion. If you want to respond to this show, you can find this post and share your thoughts through the comment system in the blog comment box. If you wish to join a future show as an audience member, go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com slash alerts and sign up to the email alert system. You can buy CDs of shows and preloaded iPods on the website. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This show is produced and hosted by me, Brother Wolf, and I am responsible for its content. It is released under a Creative Commons non-derivative and non-commercial license. That means you can copy it and you can give it away, but you can't splice it up or sell it. High-definition versions of this show are considered copyrighted, all rights reserved.